Um, so uh, Paul has begun here in uh, Philippians chapter 4, um, addressing the church at Philippi, talking about how they were his joy and his crown. He addressed uh, Judea and Syntyche, asked them to be of the same mind in the Lord, uh, spoke to his true companion. We don't have really any indication to who that is. And um, broader uh, greeting to the rest of my fellow workers there in verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. And we talked about uh, the uh, perspective uh, of what the book of life is. Um, he encouraged them to rejoice in the Lord always. And that statement, again, I will you know, say rejoice. Uh, the, the need to continuously um, cause our hearts uh, to rejoice. You think of the way the psalmist had to command his own soul, saying, you know, why are you downcast within me? Rejoice in the Lord. And then continuing, let your gentleness be made known to all men. Uh, the Lord is at hand and uh, made mention to the fact that this was something that the early church fathers, you know, you, you hear certain things today about uh, the rapture of the church and people want to say, oh, that's a relatively new concept that was, you know, developed by Darby, and it's not something that historically the church has held to. Uh, that statement in verse 5, the Lord is at hand, is literally talking about the return of the Lord. Uh, they, they all were looking for the return of the Lord. Uh, we have this habit of referring to uh, the early church leaders. We refer to them as the early church fathers. I encourage people to not do that. Um, Jesus said, call no man on earth your father. Don't even call any man on earth your teacher. You're all brethren. Okay, And that lends to a much more accurate understanding of where all of us are in the Lord. We are all saints. He's going to address the saints. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ for eternal life and salvation, is a saint. Uh, there isn't a super class of Christians that exceed everyone else. So uh, I, I, you know, I'm chasing the rabbit trail here. But uh, the early church leaders, uh, they said uh, in writing, anyone that spoke against the eminent return of Jesus Christ was a heretic and should be put out of the church. Uh, they very much had the mindset that Jesus Christ, and it wasn't even in their mind, could, right? We say it more along those lines, Jesus could return at any time. They had the mindset Jesus would return at any moment. So much so that when you're reading the book of Acts, that is why they sold all of their possessions and everyone lived together. You know, in their mind, they had no need of houses, no need of, you know, uh, chariots or horses or, or anything because Jesus was going to be back any minute. So they lived that way. And, you know, as time went by, uh, they got used to the concept that, oh, we actually need to live in this world and minister to people, uh, you know, always with the mindset that the Lord could return, but that we need to care for our basic necessities. And, and that'll, 
you know, let us minister to the people we work with and that we go to school with and that we, you know, are our neighbors. So they, the, the, the development of the idea that uh, sort of keeping your eye on the heavens while you kept your hand on the plow, that the Lord uh, was going to return soon. Unfortunately, that becomes complacency throughout history to where the church is acting like, eh, they've always said that. And now it's gotten to the place where people are saying, oh, the rapture isn't really a thing we should be looking for. Christ isn't going to be returning. That's something that the church invented. No, it, it was an essential Christian doctrine that the early church leaders taught all of the Christians they must believe in order to be a Christian. This was something that they held on to. So then he said, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I dwelt on that quite a bit at the end of our study in regard to how anxious our society and our culture is. Uh, you know, uh, the, the worry and the concern, the depression uh, that is... Uh, you know, all throughout our country, uh, my wife is uh, presently going through a number of college courses, and one of them is um, psychology, and uh, they're looking at all the different maladies of uh, human emotion, and uh, in particular, uh, I keep bringing up that uh, things they're describing, they're looking at symptoms. All the time, looking at symptoms. Oh, you know, okay, this child behaves this way. This, you know, person has uh, this sort of anxiety or that sort of behavior, or and all those things. And and then when you listen to their analysis, because very often, uh, not always, but very often, they're at a loss as to how the person got there. Okay, they 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 have certain aspects that are are fairly. Uh, solid as far as saying you know this type of situation in a person's life like when they're a child can and very often does develop this sort of behavior when they're older the thing that stands out to me is you look at almost all of these and the broken family home is what is the common causation in a lot of these circumstances fatherless Children, whether the father is there physically, he's very often not emotionally or mentally or especially spiritually not lending any guidance. Um, now, add to that, uh, you know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction, not the beating, right? We talked about that, how the shepherd carried a rod that he led and guided the sheep with you know, the rod of correction you know, will drive that godlessness and that's really what we're talking about the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child right <clears throat> we say uh, the scripture teaches us the fool has said in his heart there is no god right the foolishness of a child uh, is to say uh, there is no authority there is no order there is no god there is no i'll just go my way and do whatever and freak out and throw myself on the floor here in the middle of the shopping center and scream and bitch a fit and just, 
Yeah. The rod of correction will guide that child away from the foolishness of godlessness and into godliness and, and order and correction and authority. And so now we look around in our culture and it's just all spun out of control and everybody's going, what happened? Rejected God, deterioration of the family, you know, millions of people being raised in the human blender of human emotion. That's, that's what you're looking at. A lot of really crazy things. So this anxiety, this, uh, you know, intensity of, human emotion that you know we need to go to the lord with all of these things and when we do it will result in peace so the opposite of that would be the lack of peace right so there rather than having your anxiety quelled you would have anxiety without the lord you would have a lack of peace without the lord you know uh, there would not be any guard in your heart uh, in, in your mind, you, you'll you'll be subject to every anxiety and every lack of uh, comfort uh, if you are rejecting of these things, which is why you have the next verses, beginning at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true. Now you can go through and sort of underline a few points here in verse 8. Eight, you have true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praiseworthy. Those are the things to meditate upon right there. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that is such an intense set of verses that, uh, I mean, you could preach a semester of Bible college on the tentacles that reach out from here into other places. So I'm going to just condense this down as best I can um, and uh, take a look at a number of things. Um, you know, for the younger people in the room, uh, for those watching online, uh, when I say certain things, try not to be offended. Okay. And, and, you know, the older crowd might be thinking along a certain line when I say that. And let me just show you some gaps in our thinking, right? If you're thinking I'm going elsewhere about uh, uh, being offensive, how about this? <clears throat> if I say to you, there are things in life that are true. There's a bunch of you that are sitting here right now that are like, yep, so what? You're like, yeah, sure. There's a whole bunch of people, you know, maybe a few in this room and a whole bunch of people that would watch online that are like, well, I don't know if that's exactly true. Is there truth? See, we live in a culture, and especially the younger generation, and, 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 and those of us that are my age and older 
have really lost touch with the group that is now being called Generation Z. Listen, I hope they're Generation Z. I really do. I hope this is the last of it right here. (laughs) I hope this is the end. I I hope Christ is right on the, the, the door, you know, and and we're we're gonna see him step through and correct all of these things. And I don't say that in any mocking way, but there is a culture of young people who don't think that there's any. It's well more than anything. Not not even so much so that they don't think anything's true. A, a lot of where they're at is they don't think it's possible to know whether something's true or not. There's just, there's just so much information on both sides of the opinion that how could you ever say something is true or not? Okay, <clears throat> well, let me just back up into something that sort of sets a foundation to the whole picture. The Word of God is... Okay, we'll even go this way. The Word of God claims to be perfect. It claims to be perfect. claims to be God-breathed. That, that there's no error in the original language, the original text, the original context. Okay? If, if you make that claim, okay, then all you have to do is find a single flaw and the moment you do, you can throw the whole thing out, right? Because if I sat here right now and I said to you, I am perfect, I have no flaws. <laughs> I mean, you just blink once and look at me and go, no, he's a liar. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can see flaws just as quick as that. You know, if, if you want to say, oh, well, depends on how you interpret it. Okay, well now, all you got to do is dig a little deeper into my life, and you're going to find flaws. Right away, my claim of being perfect makes me imperfect. The fact that you can find flaws makes me even all the more flawed. The book claims to be without flaw, without error. That actually is a really wonderful aspect to this whole book. Because if you find the flaw, then you don't have to search any further. You can just literally burn the thing. Because it's making a claim that nullifies itself. Now, the people that want to say, oh, well, I found a flaw right over here. Right, It says in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, just as an example. But over here in the New Testament, here's Jesus saying that you should turn the other cheek and you should love your enemy. So over here, eye for an eye. Over here, love your enemy. And they go, see, inconsistency. Don't have to listen anymore. Well, you have to study further than that. Not This isn't like the world does, right? You catch a kid with his hand in the cookie jar. 
And, you know, as he's pulling it out and he's got cookie all over his face and you say, I told you not to eat the cookies. And what are you doing? The cookie jar says, I, I was just getting this for you. He bold-faced lies and he redefines what he's doing and then he puts the blame on you. Okay? The, really, the reason I'm in the cookie jar is because of you. <laughs> That's the way liars work. Okay? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, love your enemy as yourself is actually the same statement. It's that we don't understand Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and we don't understand, turn the other cheek. Because in the Old Testament, all of the cultures around Israel had a different mentality, which was, we've talked about this at length before, if you've knocked my tooth out, we got in a fight, and you came up and literally, bang, knocked my tooth out. I'm so embarrassed and so filled with rage out of my pride that when I finally regain my consciousness, I sneak into your home in the middle of the night and kill you in your sleep and burn you and your house down and your barn and, you know, all your livestock. That's the way that the world around Israel functioned. You, you've wronged me. I'm filled with rage. And now I will just incinerate your whole world. So the Lord put a limitation on the law saying, look, wait a minute. If somebody knocks out your tooth, the only thing you can do as legal recourse is knock out their tooth. You have to stop. <laughs> right? So it's the concept of if, if someone steals your horse, all you can do is go get your horse back. Right? If he sold your horse or slaughtered your horse, well, then you can demand that he repay you a horse, but you can't go there and kill him and burn his house down and kill all of his horses. Okay? You, 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 there was, it was a limitation. So the Old Testament saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wasn't vengeance is mine. <laughs> it was slow down. Take it easy. Jesus in the New Testament, saying, turn the other cheek, that was a that was a Jewish statement of you, they had a way of phrasing it, but if, if someone slapped you with the forehand, that might be acceptable, but you would never let them then pull through and hit you with the backhand. Okay? One, maybe you didn't see the first slap coming, right? We, the, we say... Fool me once, right? We say that in our culture. You know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, okay? Like I should have protected myself. That's the same thing that Jesus is saying of, you know, you don't, you don't have to block the second hit. The graciousness, right? You know, I've, I've wronged Steve. I stole five bucks from him. And, uh, you know, conviction of the Lord, let's just say, and I go and I confess I stole $5 from you. Here's your money back. And Steve says, I forgive you, and that was terrible, and can't we be friends again? And we patch it up, and I steal 5 bucks from him again. I mean, it's, it's a bad illustration, but the point is, as believers, it's okay to forgive somebody a second time. 
and a third time. Right. Peter thinks he's all noble. How many times should I forgive my brother, right? 70 times 7 in a single day. In a single day, you know? Reset the reset the counter and start over tomorrow. Right? Some of us some of us are are so legalistic, which is what both eye for an eye, tooth for tooth and turning in the cheek the scripture was trying to correct. We're so legalistic that we're like, literally like, Oh, you stole five bucks out there. Well, there's one, you know, and there's two and that's it. 490 and throw down. And we're going, you know, fist to cuff because I've, I've put up with you as long as I'm supposed to. We, we, tr we try to turn it into some kind of sinful legalism. There isn't an inconsistency, is my point. What's happening is people don't understand the Scripture, don't seek to understand the Scripture. They look to find fault and flaw with it so that they can throw it away. Our culture has thrown it away. Look at what's going on in our culture right now. Uh, you've heard me quote the statistics countless times. 1963, we decide we need to get prayer out of the public school. So we, we throw the Bible and prayer out of public school. Can't do that anymore. From 1963 to 1973, 500% increase in violent crimes in America. And now everybody's standing around in, in 1963 as you know the rioting begins and they're burning cities down and, and it's chaos and drug addiction and free love everywhere and everybody's going, what in the world happened? Well, you all decided that there was no truth, that, there, that the Bible wasn't written by God, that it wasn't worthy to listen to, and you threw it away, and you started immediately reaping what you'd sown. If people would just grasp the concept that God's word is perfect, and there is truth, there is there is verifiable truth in the world. This is, this is where literally the whole problem began in the human race. A lot of people aren't aware of that. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. It's a paradise. Satan shows up in the form of a snake. And the, and the very first thing that he says to the human race is, can you really trust the Bible? I mean, I don't know if we're, I think we're mostly aware of that, especially in this room, but that, that's, that's the very first thing that Satan says to Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat of the tree? And then he lies to her and says, you will not die. You'll be like God. Now, look, being like God, as he was talking about, was knowing good and evil. I always ask people, wouldn't you like to go back to the time in your life where you were actually innocent, pure? You know, I just, I have like some super fond memories of being a kid, you know, where I'm sure I was doing bad stuff. But I was oblivious. It was just it was just goodness and fun. You know, climbing trees and riding bikes and jumping ramps and playing street hockey and going to school and 
just fun. You know, I can distinctly remember a few points where I lost my innocence, took steps and made choices, lost my innocence. I bet you have similar things, markers in your life. You know, this, this robbery that our enemy, the enemy of our souls performs upon the human race, convincing us to reject God's word, leads us every time into the loss of innocence as we plunge into sinful problems. This is, this is, I mean, if, you, if you're going to do what this is saying right here, you pretty much are going to have to shut off every screen in your life. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> How are you going to know what's true if you're listening to the internet, watching the television, listening to cable broadcasts? It's just the opinions and the lies and the manipulation and the way things are just going all the time. You gotta think about the things that are true. You're gonna the only place you're gonna find unadulterated truth is in God's word. That's it. That's the only place. There's not gonna be any other pollutant in it. It's just so much garbage. So much garbage out there. It's it's, it's wild. Whatever things are noble, our culture's gone so far away from this that it doesn't even understand what's noble. You know, the dignity is in, involved in that. I was watching a debate last night <clears throat> online, and this young guy is promoting the concept that abortion is okay from the position of if a person doesn't have emotional attachments and the ability to make their own choices, then they're not a living being. So therefore, to put them to death is fine. The guy who's debating with him says, so the person who's in a coma, it's okay to put them to death? How about the person who has Alzheimer's, right? And you can see, you can watch his expression drain out of him, but his pride, right? Because he stood up in front of thousands of people and made the statement. He has to defend the position and now stand there and say, yes, this is the way it is. And the guy debating him says, so literally a child who has been born, not even in the womb anymore, who's now outside the womb. Because according to your definition, you're saying they aren't existing yet. You can put them to death. And this guy, realizing what he said, goes, yeah, and stands there and defends the position. Which, like I said, then branches over into here's a person who's in a coma. They have no atta- emotional attachment to anyone and no ability to make any cognitive thought process. 
right? And and there are people within our culture who are literally doing this. They they want to kill people that are in comas. They want to take those that are Alzheimer's patients and the elderly and put them to death. That this is where our nobility's gone. We we don't have you know not looking at the truth of God's word, not looking at uh, you know the dignity of life and what Christ has given us in our our existence. It's just astonishing. Now, Steve and I sitting back here tonight talking about how the human body deals with illness in regard to COVID-19 and the way that the first time an illness enters your body, your, your body's never dealt with it before at all. If it's a brand new illness to you, uh, in the case of COVID-19, you got a virus that's surrounded by a protective protein. Your body has to figure out the process to break down the protein to get to the virus, to reach the virus. The virus has all kinds of implications upon the body. It's got to figure out the process to dismantle the virus. And sometimes it loses in the process of battling that virus. But once it's done it, your body has literally recorded that information and filed it away. So that the next time that get intro, you're going to get sick. But the next time it's introduced, your body literally takes that and goes, takes the illness and goes to the file and looks it up and says, oh, we've got that right here. And goes through the breakdown process that much more rapidly and that much more effectively. That's genius. That we're designed that way. That there, there's an encoded process within us that deals with invasive properties like that. Incredible. Incredible. The dignity of being created in God's image by God. All of this stuff intact. Whatever things are noble, elevated, above. Whatever things are just. Oh, man, has our culture lost what justice means. Right? You hear about all these justice warriors out there. Well, listen, they're not actually justice warriors, right? They're not. Because justice simply looks at right and wrong. That's all that justice, that's all that justice looks at. It doesn't look at any mitigating circumstances whatsoever. <clears throat> so there's a law, and it says, Thou shalt not whatever. And it's on the books. We could look at it another way, and we could talk about God's laws, which are in creation. But let's just talk about the laws of our land and the laws of our culture. It says, thou shalt not. You know, it could be murder or speed or steal or whatever it is, right? <clears throat> when we look at social justice, for instance, and there are many brands of justice in our culture today. But when we look at social justice, anytime you add anything to justice, it's no longer justice. Because justice says, well, it's wrong. Let's just focus on stealing. It's wrong to steal. And we've made that a law. And if you steal, let's just say you're going to go to jail for five years. And so all we have to determine, all we have to determine under that guideline is, did you steal? That's all you've got to determine. Did this belong to you? 
No. Did it belong to someone else? Yes. Did you go to that place with the intention of taking it away from the person it rightfully belongs to to steal it under yourself and keep it in your possession as your property? Without permission, without paying, is that what happened? Yes. Well, then you stole. Therefore, your sentence is five years. That's how justice works. All you have to do is prove, did you steal it? Social justice doesn't work that way at all. Social justice considers the fact that it was someone else's property and you stole it, but it, it looks at why. It doesn't look at the how, it just looks at it just looks at the why. Why did you steal? You were desperate. You wanted it, you coveted it. You know, those are those are things they literally start looking at. Then they go even further into what formed you to become a person that would steal. You know, you were beaten. Your father threw you down the stairs. Your mother left when you were an infant. You were hated as a child. You were picked on when you're in school. Um, you know, I'm not mocking any of those things. I'm saying that the, all of that literally happened to you, and so now you steal. So we go, well, we're not going to punish this person based upon all they've been through. So now we've lost justice. Yeah. The people that want to say, well, uh, pu- simply punishing someone for what they did wrong will not change them. Well, to a degree, that is true. To a degree, right? There is a large percentage of people who, when you punish them in this way, it does not change their behavior. That, that's the truth of the matter. But there's another element within it that isn't ever considered through the lens of social justice, which is punishing the person who did do that stops other people from doing it. That person serves as an example. When the next person comes to the situation and they've been through whatever horrible circumstances they've been through in life and they're about to steal, they go, well, my friend cousin, brother, person I know, heard about, read about, did the same thing I'm about to do, and they're sitting in jail for five years. And usually what goes on in that situation is I got in trouble myself back there, and I went to jail for one month, two months, three months, a year, and now I'm about to steal this, and I know that people who steal this Go to jail for five years? I'd rather not go to jail for five years. So it does it does help stop. And that's not an opinion. That's a statistical truth. When you take away the punishment, every single time the crime skyrockets. It doesn't go up mildly. It skyrockets. Right now, New York City... Jail and bail reform just took place. There's essentially very little crime that you have to post bail for in New York City right now. Uh, Two weeks ago, they arrested a guy 
13 times in 14 days for auto theft? <clears throat> because there's no bail. Literally arrested, taken downtown, booked, fingerprinted, and then like now be on your way and out the door. And, and that's just what they've caught him on. I mean, you know, it gets to the point where you just follow him out the door. You know what I'm saying? Because you know what he's going to do. When there is no punishment. See, justice, uh, you know, Paul is literally telling the believers, look, you, forget the rest of your culture. Forget the rest of your culture. You guys, as believers in Jesus Christ, need to become people that pay attention to the things that are true. Now, I'll jump ahead. We should know the word meditate, right? Because each one of these things that he tells us, truth, nobility, justice, purity, lovely, things of good report, and things of virtue that are praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's the term, ruminate. It's, it's we, we get meditate as far as the language goes after we get the word ruminate. Ruminate is what cows do. They chew on the cud. Grass has almost no nutritional value in it. There's, there's very little that can be derived from grass and all weed sources like that. So God designed the cow to digest it more thoroughly than any other animal in order to produce milk and meat. So the cow eats. It goes into stomach number one. It literally belches all of that back up and chews the cud all over again. Got to redigest it. And starting from the saliva process all the way back through to the acidic process and their acidic process is much lower than our own but anyway they get very little nutrition out of it once twice three times four times five times six times seven times and then they expel it they digest grass that thoroughly to get everything they get because there's next to no nutritional value in it. God designed the cow to digest grass, to ruminate upon it. We are to meditate, ruminate, redigest mentally, emotionally, things that are true, things that are noble, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are of good report, things that have any virtue, things that are praiseworthy. Now listen, you do this, you do this, there's a, there's a whole study in food behind this that applies over to the spiritual realm that's, that's really quite interesting. Um, as far as we know, there's an enzyme that your uh, liver produces, but it gets the signal from your stomach that tells the liver to release the enzyme to your brain that says what you just put in our stomach has enough nutritional value to sustain us. So you eat food and your body, it has to begin the process of the food to get the liver to release the enzyme so the brain gets the message of, okay, what you just put in the stomach, there's enough nutritional value in it for us to sustain ourselves, okay? 
it, it's kind of complex. Follow this. So I, I gave you a long explanation of ruminating and, uh, you know, uh, chewing the cud, the human body and its process. If you eat, it should be that if you eat a baked potato and salad and green beans and a, a nice steak, a lot of food, a lot of dense nutritional value in all of that. That should take you right around 20 minutes or more to get all of that into you, okay? And that's about how much time it takes for your body to get the leptin, the enzyme, back to your brain. To tell the brain, yes, we, we definitely have enough food on board. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Here's the problem. We go through the drive through and we ask them to supersize it and we uh, stuff that all down our throat, uh, washing it as quickly as possible in with a high level of high fructose corn syrup. Okay. Here, here's the biggest problem within all of that picture. Uh, sugar of any source shuts off the liver's ability to produce the leptin. So the brain never gets the signal that says we have enough food on board. So put all the food in, the body is pretty much aware of we don't have enough food on board. There's not enough nutritional value in the supersized meal that you just gave us to sustain us, so you probably ought to get some more on board right now. So literally, as you're aching from how much you just put in, your body's sending the signal to the rest of your physical frame, go get more food. How about that? Meditating on these things spiritually that are very spiritually nutrient-rich will cause a satisfaction to your heart, soul, mind, and frame to rest and experience peace. Now, because you do ruminate spiritually, you meditate, if we're filling it full of junk all day, right? If you're supersizing your YouTube intake, your binging on Netflix intake. The signal's never coming back to your brain. We've got enough. It says you need to go consume more. Because there's nothing in this. Nothing in it that's true. Nothing in it that's noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, any virtue, nothing praiseworthy. So I got to go consume again and again. And listen, right? <clears throat> I mean, beef, beef has nutritional value. There's beef in the supersized meal, right? Ah, but not enough, right? I mean, if, if, if we go buy a, a, an eight-ounce porterhouse and you're eating a big pile of green beans and a potato with that, right? You, 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 you eat every meal that way, right away your meal starts getting smaller and smaller because there's so much nutrition 
in it. I mean, if you got up in the morning and for breakfast you had steak and eggs and a sweet potato, right? If you ate that at 6 a.m., by noon you might be hungry, but you're definitely not going to want another steak and potato and another pile of, like, broccoli. <laughs> and if you do eat that, you're going to eat a smaller portion. And then if you do that again at dinner time, you're going to get a smaller portion. Why? Because it's nutrient rich. If, if we are consuming the word of God first thing in the morning in mass quantity, actually taking it in and digesting it, and then at noon, and then in the evening, there's going to be a satisfaction See, this, this ruminating, this meditating, this isn't just me like trying to invent something out of this short little passage here. He's saying you should be constantly digesting this in depth. The place where you're going to find this is in the Word of God. You might find it in the writings of very godly men. A.W. Tozier, you know, Charles Spurgeon. You know, Finney, Moody, right? Serious men of God and authors meditating upon their writings, digesting the things that they've given us. That, that's, where, where, that's where our culture is lost. I, I can't even, you know, I mean, I'll never forget when I first came to the Lord, what really dedicated my life to the Lord. I, uh, a friend of mine gave me a book called Good Morning Holy Spirit. And uh, I was anxious to start, like, you know, having a devotional time. And, and thankfully, a friend of mine said, oh, you don't want to read that. <clears throat> it was written by Benny Hinn. And uh, so he gives me an article. Uh, I think it was written by Tex Mars. But anyway, whoever wrote it. Um, explained that when Benny Hinn wrote the book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, uh, he sent it to the Christian publisher, and they sent it back to him and said, we, we don't publish New Age books. We're a Christian company, and this is not a Christian book that you've written. So, uh, you know, go find somebody else. And Benny Hinn said, well, you know, I want you as this Christian publisher to publish this because of the popularity you have with Christianity. So I want my book to be accepted by Christianity because I want it to come from you guys. So I want you to publish it. So I'll rewrite it. And he does and he gives it to them and they send it back and say, no, um, this you don't understand. You don't understand Christianity. This is not a Christian book. This, this happens three times until Benny Hinn goes to the publisher with his team and says, how do we make my book Christian enough to where you'll publish it? And they basically said, it looks like we would have to write it for you. And if we write it for you, then, then we get a portion of that based on how much we rewrite it. So he paid the money and sat down with them, and they edited the book 
together until it was Christian enough to where they would publish the book and it went out the door and it became one of Christianity's number one bestsellers. Good morning, Holy Spirit. It was a pile of junk, right? Imagine inviting someone over to your house for an extravagant meal and they arrive and you just, you pull the lid off and it's all quarter pounder cheese. You know what I'm saying? Just like, ta-da, <laughs> this is what I prepared for you. You know, this is, you know, here at your wedding, you know, this is what we're going to eat. I mean, novel, right? I mean, you know, I see two of my brothers back here who are like, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, I said, uh, okay, right. I, it, but, but, right? What if you had to pay $200 for that meal? That's that's not worth, right? That's not worth. This doesn't hold value. And this is the way Christianity is right now. If it has stamped on the cover, New York Times bestseller, everybody's like, it's got to be. You know, number number one Christian book distributor publication, three years running. Everybody's like, I got to buy that book. Do you? Are, are you finding things that are true? Are you finding things that are noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtue, praiseworthy in them? Because by and large, you're not. You know, I'll give you a book right now if you have not spent the time to read this book, digest it, and then live by it. Why don't you, uh, you know, go home, look up on Amazon, and get yourself a copy of Calvary Road. Let Hessian just blow your mind. It's about that thick, <laughs> right? So small. You, it's. I mean, you'll get it and be like, this is a booklet. You'll be five pages into it, and you'll just realize you are such a self-centered individual, you can't even believe it. That book will reach right out and punch you right in the mouth so forcibly about where is your faith? What are you doing with your life? Calvary Road. So much of what Christianity is redigesting over and over again. Honestly, it doesn't even have anything to do with the Word of God. Not at all. Just just entertainment. Just just you know doesn't even take any chewing, you know what I'm saying? Right? I don't know if you ever noticed that about certain like places, hamburgers. Like you take a, a bite out of it. If you take half a gulp off that soda that's with it and just sort of squeeze and swallow, gone. <laughs> it doesn't take any chewing. Right? If you took a piece of steak and did that, just bit right in and pulled that out, it really doesn't matter how much drink you put right behind that, you're going to probably choke to death. <laughs> you have to chew. You must work at digesting it. Calvary Road is a book that I, I'm like, you know, you've read three pages and it's so deep that you're like, I, I oh wait, I got to back up. And you go back three pages at, at like where your soul separated from the challenge that was being recorded on the page. And you start again and you move forward with the depth of what's there. 
meditating on these things, you guys. Spend some time. Here's your extra credit homework assignment. Spend some time on your own looking at verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 again. I'll just get us through some of this closure at the end. But that is a very potent couple of verses in this chapter. Verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunities, literally talking about the giving that they provided, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, you know, to live lowly and simply and humbly. I know how to abound. And it's okay for Christians to abound. It's okay for their times to be just almost luxurious states of living. It's okay. The Lord does provide these things. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, th I think, you know, verse 13 is an awesome verse in all settings. But I do think it's very important to remember the setting that it was written in. Right? Because it's usually when we're dealing with lean times that we begin to act like Christ has forsaken me. Why is it always so hard? <laughs> and Paul is saying, I've learned how to live in the base state of existence, in the simple, humble ways. Sometimes things are glorious. Other times they are very challenging. And that's where this verse comes from. Paul is saying, I've learned how to live in what the Lord provides. I've learned how to live with the simplicity. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. They've literally sent provision to him, financial uh, provision and food and, and things that he needed. So nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, and when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You guys were it. You were my mission support. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds on your account. There was a time here in this church where I was trying to encourage some men to get involved, and one of the men that was here got really angry with me. I, I had asked guys to consider, you know, where they might be able to come uh, to the church and help out. And one of the men, who was very sinful, a number of things going on in his life, came and just told me off. He said, you, you just want a whole bunch of people to come here and serve you. <laughs> and I said, well, no, frankly, uh, what I was looking to do is not be the only person here who was receiving those rewards from the Lord. I was trying to present opportunities for everybody to get involved 
and everybody to be working for the Lord, receive reward, and then we'll all together let that growth continue. You know, the number of things I'm doing will expand. The number of things you're doing will expand. The number of things everybody's doing will expand. We'll all get greater and greater reward. Often people have a misunderstanding about what it means to give. To give means you're going to receive. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's another verse that we should know the context of it, right? It's in their giving to Paul and the work of the Lord that Paul is assuring them the Lord is going to supply all of your needs. He's, he's saying to them, you know, our natural tendency is to not give for fear that we ourselves are not going to have enough. And Paul is saying to them, you know, in the fact that you trusted the Lord and you gave to the Lord by giving to me, the Lord's going to take care of you. The Lord is going to supply all your needs. There's a great abundance in giving to the Lord and a promise of that abundance if we'll trust him. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a true statement right there. There's a lot of trouble right now and people get all consumed about what's going on in the news and the world around them and God is still on his throne. You're not going to thwart his plan. Not going to overthrow his kingdom. He will accomplish the very things that he set out to do. Verse 21, greet every saint. There it is again. We're all saints, right? There's St. Evan back there, St. Stephen up here, right? St. Shannon, St. You know, Casey. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with you, uh, or excuse me, with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And I love this statement. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. <laughs> Paul is a clandestine operative. He's been set inside Caesar's household as a prisoner. And he's in there preaching the gospel to them. To the point of conversion. Right? To the point of conversion. He's inside this household leading people to Jesus. Remember that. The next time you're thinking, oh, I wish I could just quit this job and go work somewhere in the ministry. <laughs> Guess what? Your job is the ministry. Get to work, man. Preach the gospel. Share it with your you know, co-workers and your fellow students and your friends and family and neighbors. They, they are the ones you have been sent. They are the ones you have been sent to. Go to them. Talk to them. Share your faith with them. He closes by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Oh, the grace of God. <clears throat> Look, I just want to, for just a, just a minute, dwell on the grace that keeps us from sin. 
Because there are so many people that use grace to cover up and allow for sin. And that's not what the Lord provided it for. It does work in that fashion. But his grace keeps us from sinning. How am I ever going to quit doing this? By his grace. That's how you're going to do it. And if you don't, if you don't learn that, then you're not going to learn that. You have to rely upon his grace to deliver you. To deliver you from these things. The church has misused and abused the grace of God. Oh, I prayed the prayer. I raised my hand. I sighed the card. I'm a Christian. Really? Did you repent? That's part of the package. Yeah. I openly admitted what I was doing was sin. That's not repentance. That's confession. And that's all it is. Is confession. Repentance is turning around. Literally. That's what the term means. And going the opposite direction. The grace of our God be with you all. Amen. That, that's how you change. Is through God's grace. Let him change you by his grace. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. I thank you for such an expansive set of verses regarding what we should meditate upon. Help us to meditate on those verses and the things contained in them. Lord, I pray that as we move forward into Colossians, that our hearts and minds will be ready for the message that's there that the very things contained in that book would speak and minister to our hearts where we are. Help us to take what we've learned and what is in our lives and declare it to the world. That we could be, as your scripture says, like the stars of heaven. People would be able to guide their lives according to the wisdom, the knowledge that comes from your word and is in our mouths. Use us as your children, your sons, your daughters, your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.